You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. With me right here is Mr. Rudy Rocker. Rudy Rucker is the author of the Wares Trilogy. He's also the author of Space Time Donuts. And his latest novel is Jim and the Flims. It's right here. This is a fabulous novel set in Santa Cruz and the afterlife, assuming you can tell the difference. <laughs> We're in heaven. We're in heaven. Over in the next chair over there is Mr. Kim Stanley Robinson. His newest book is Galileo's Dream. He's the author of Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, the California Trilogy. He is the author of the 60, 40, 50, 60 trilogy of uh, a comedic trilogy of uh, books about global climate change. If you can, here's the man who can make global climate change entertaining and funny. Welcome Kim Stanley Robinson and Rudy Rocker. Uh, my name's Rick Kleffel and I host a show called The Agony Column. This is a live version of this show on, uh, that runs on KUSP. Actually, you can hear the last show I did two weeks ago tomorrow night between 6 and 7 p.m. on KUSP 88.9 FM. And uh, you can go on their website and make a donation and let them know you actually listen to this show and come here and support reading and literature and the best authors in the world, which we are privileged to have here tonight. So uh, we're going to start the show with uh, each of these gentlemen is going to read a bit of their latest book. And we'll have Rudy start with a reading from Jim and the Flims. OK, thanks very much, Rick. Uh, it's nice to see you again. You've, I've had a number of good encounters with you over the years. You do a lot to keep science fiction going down here. And it's an honor to be here with Stan Robinson, one of the, the great modern writers of our time. Uh, I think uh, I'll just start with the, the first few pages of the book, keep it simple. So th uh, this starts on Four Mile Beach, which some of you might know if you live in Santa Cruz. I'm Jim Oster. I grew up in Sunnyvale, a knot of freeways near San Jose, California. My father was an electrical engineer and my mother sold online ads. Dad was what you might call piebald with different colors in his hair. He stared off into the distance a lot, always thinking about his projects. Mom had warm eyes and she'd smile and nod when she happened to look my way, but she spent most of her time staring down at her little phone's screen. During my senior year in high school, I used to play hooky and go surfing in Santa Cruz. It was only a half hour's drive away. In the morning, I'd stuff my wetsuit into my backpack instead of carrying books. My parents didn't notice, and if they had, they wouldn't have cared. They'd had their one child, me, and by now they'd turned to other concerns, their jobs and their investments. My grades weren't a big issue, as I'd already been accepted for admission at the University of California. My favorite surf break was off a rocky point at Four Mile Beach on Route 1 north of Cruz. My friend Chang would drive us over there. Chang wasn't into studying at all. He was planning to be a pro surfer, and he figured his day job could be dealing pot. He had a vintage blue oot board with an epic feel. I was more of a short boarder, working snapping moves up and down the tubes when I wasn't wiped out and floundering in the foam. 
Some of the locals at Four Mile had taken to hassling us. A spaced out raw boned guy called Skeeves was on my case in particular. He was a little older than the rest of us. All he did was surf and he lived in his van. One particular afternoon, I did a drop in on one of Skeeves' waves, forcing him away from the curl. When we got back to shore, he put his face really close to mine and started yelling curses at me, even throwing in some gibberish type incantations that he'd learned. Skeeves had this idea that he was hooked into the magic of the pyramids or some shit like that. Shit, Beetle yelled Skeeves. Ank salam amenhotep. <laughs> Calm down, I told him. It's just a wave. Ruhnu port muhura, Skeeves intoned, making weird gestures with his hands. Dude's having a fit, said Chang, standing at a safe distance. His brain is slushed. It's a magic spell, fool, said Skeeves. The chant is called leaving in the daytime. I might send you two out of your bodies. He crouched and picked up a dense, sharp rock. Let's take a break, Chang, I said, briskly heading down the beach. We'll get some beer, I called back to Skeeves. You can have all my waves while I'm gone. Skeeves' van was parked in the lot near Chang's pickup. Skeeves lived in this van mostly, and he had tinted glass in the rear windows. He'd painted occult symbols all over the vehicle, ankh crosses with loops on top, scarab beetles, hovering eyes, hieroglyphs, and a long pair of wings flowing back from the front wheel welts. Peering in through the van's dusky rear window, we could make out a long gold box in the back of the van. Skeeves got into the Egyptian stuff when he started dealing dope to Julian Crocker in San Francisco, said Chang. But wow, is that a casket? Who's Crocker? He's a screwball descendant of this rich old family. He lives in a mansion with all these whack antiquities. Skeeves is up there all the time. Last week he was putting together a deal to sell Crocker a bunch of ketamine. I brooded about Skeeves on the short drive to the Quick Mart in, in Davenport. And when we got back to the Four Mile Beach parking lot, I took a knife out of Chang's glove compartment and slashed one of the front tires on Skeeves' van. <laughs> Chang and I carried the beer down to the beach and had a mellow hour or two on the waves. I even forgot about slashing Skeeves' tire until we all went back up to the lot together. Skeeves got all excited. Chang was laughing so hard that the weird old surfer quickly figured out it was me who'd done the deed. Skeeves said he was going to kill me. He fetched an axe with a green painted handle from the van. I was scared. It was hard to tell what Skeeves might do, and it looked as if the axe blade already had blood on it. Chang and I ran, leading Skeeves in a big circle. We got back to Chang's pickup first, then hopped in and drove away. It was maybe the next day when we saw in the paper that Julian Crocker had been found dead in his home. The cops thought it might be a drug overdose. Crocker was found lying beside a fireplace filled with ashes. Apparently he'd suffocated from some smoke. And an ancient gold sarcophagus was said to be missing from the Crocker manse. But there was no actual sign of robbery. In any case, Crocker's surviving relatives weren't interested in trying to make a case, and the cops quickly lost interest. Quite a few of the surf crowd must have suspected that Skeeves was involved, especially with that funky gold casket right in his van. A rumor was circulating among us that Skeeves was now fucking a mummy that he'd found in the gold box. Not that any of us was going public with this stuff. Chang and I had switched to Surfing Pleasure Point down near 41st Street in Cruz. Right here. There were some psychos there too, and a few of them made a point of picking on us 
especially when they found out that we were valley guys from near San Jose. Chang toughed it out and got in with the brass. His steady supply of weed was a help, but I couldn't get past the hostility. And then I was like, fuck it, and I went back to skateboarding. I'd never been that good of a surfer anyway. After high school, I went to college at the Santa Cruz campus of the University of California. I decided to go for a bachelor's degree in bioengineering. Everyone said biotech was the coming thing and the courses appealed to me. I'd always liked video games and I dug the idea of viewing the natural world as being a big program that we could mod and hack. Of course there were people, especially around crews, who worried that biotech was going to bring on some filthy germs who'd kill us all. My professor said that wasn't a real problem because if you looked into it a little, you could see that our whole entire ecology is made of plants, animals, and microorganisms who want to eat everything. All the species had been mutating and evolving for billions of years, each and every one of them striving for world domination. And no piddly-ass organism we were going to cook up in a lab had any chance of taking down the ancient battle-scarred prose. <laughs> to hear my profs tell it, home-brewed germs were like high school grommets facing the gnarly surfers of Four Mile Beach. Well, maybe they are right and maybe not. Either way, I figured it would be good to have a rebellious, clear-minded guy like me on the inside of the biotech biz. I'd be ready to blow the whistle on the earth rapers if it ever came down to that. Meanwhile, I was hoping to discover some cool things and to make a good living as well. My old friend Chang was living down in Cruz by now too, surfing his ass off. He won a few local contests, and during my junior year at UC Santa Cruz, he got invited to the annual Mavericks Big Wave contest a few miles up the coast. I went to watch him, that is to watch the faint line on the horizon where the big waves were. On the TV monitors, we could see Chang carving sick curves into the wobbly mountains of glass. He placed in the top five and he picked up some sponsorship deals. Chang came out of my rented room a month after Mavericks and lent me a board so we could go riding at four miles just like old times. Sure enough, our man Skeeves was still on the waves, indefatigable as a Terminator robot, still living in his Egyptian-themed van. By now, Chang was in some sense a friend of Skeeves. That is to say, Skeeves' over-tweaked synapses could successfully achieve a pattern recognition of Chang's face. <laughs> He walked over to us and Chang and broke, he walked over to us and Chang broke out, broke out a joint. Skeev seemed to recognize me, but so far as I could tell, he'd forgotten about the slashed tire. I figured the joint was like a peace pipe, but after a few tokes, Chang, never one to let things stay calm, started ribbing the eccentric old surfer. Getting much, Chang asked him, still fucking the mummy? Even when Skeeves had his shades off, you couldn't really see his eyes, buried as they were in the creases of his weathered lids. He turned his head towards Chang, moving as slowly as a plant tracking the sun. <laughs> Just the girl, allowed Skeeves in a low murmur, his tongue loosened by the pot. Not the guy who's in the box with her. <laughs> <laughs> Julian Crocker and I smoked the third mummy, you know. <laughs> Amenhotep. He was down under the other two, all crumbly like rotten wood. We burned Amenhotep and Crocker's marble fireplace, the two of us leaning into the fumes, very resinous, very tasty. What a rush. But then Crocker died. 
the fucking lightweight. <laughs> Mummies, I said. Mummies, I said numbly, feeling the layers of reality come peeling off. <laughs> that mummy girl, she's softer than you'd think, came Skeeves' raspy whisper. Good stuff. It's more like she's in a coma. Every now and then, in my head, she talks to me. Can we see them, asked Chang? They're in that gold sarcophagus in the back of your van, right? You're legendary, dude. I, I don't think Jim here could handle it, said Skeeves, thoughtfully. The spirit of Amenhotep destroys the weak. <laughs> Did you say that you smoked Amenhotep's mummy? I had to say, you and Crocker? Skeeves squinted at me for a long time. Remember the axe, Jim, he said finally, and laid his bony finger over his lips. I knew then that Skeeves hadn't forgotten about the slashed tire at all. But now that he'd shared his secret with me, or run me through a bizarre put-on, we were closer than before. From then on, when I crossed Skeeves' path around Cruz, I'd wave and he'd favor me with a slow nod. Not that I spent that much time thinking about him or about the Gunji coma chick who was supposed to be in his Egyptian sarcophagus. Rudy Rucker reading from Jim and the Flims. And I just want to say that that's the kind of the normal part of the book. <laughs> it gets stranger after that. <laughs> Dan, favor us with well, the reading. Thank you, Rick. That's a hard act to follow, as always, with Rudy. Um, I'm going to read from near the end of Galileo's dream. Uh, at this point, he is an old man who has been uh, condemned by the Vatican to house arrest for a vehement suspicion of heresy. And uh, at that point, at this point, he'd be um, around 70 or so, and in, in, in incredibly decrepit at this point, and also uh, blind. Uh, he had gone blind. He was under house arrest. His older daughter had died. His younger daughter was still alive in a nearby convent where she had been for uh, most of her life. <clears throat> so, oh, and I guess this is going to become, in fact, I won't even tell you because it'll become obvious. Uh, life at Il Giello contracted in on itself, orchestrated by La Pira and performed by the entire household with the youth Viviani almost always at the maestro's side to the point where Galileo sometimes ordered him to go away. Many days he only wanted to lie on the divan in the shade or sprawl in the dirt of the garden tugging up weeds. You could see that groveling in the soil and embracing it was a comfort to him. He curled on his side in a posture like Archangela's. That's the younger daughter. But he was famous all over Europe because of his books and the trial. Foreign travelers often inquired if they could come to visit him. He always agreed to these requests which flattered his vanity and also broke the daily routine and helped pass the time. He only requested that the visitors be discreet, and generally they were, at least beforehand. After they left, they often wanted to tell the world the story of their visit. That was gratifying. He was still a figure on the great stage of Europe, an old lion, defanged and blind, but a lion still. To the Protestants, he was yet another image of the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, which was not a role that he liked to play. He felt he was a victim not of the church, but of corruption within the church, as he tried to make clear if he got the chance. I do not hope for any relief, he wrote to a supporter named Piersek, and that is because I have committed no crime. I might hope for a pardon if I had erred. 
With the guilty, a prince can show forbearance, but against one wrongfully sentenced when he is innocent, it is expedient to uphold rigor so as to put up a show of strict lawfulness. This was something right out of Machiavelli, a writer Galileo knew well. Galileo had met his prince, too, and suffered the consequent tortures, just as Machiavelli had. Apparently, a translated edition of the Dialogo had been published in England. Galileo had no idea until Englishmen began to appear at his gate. One of the first of them, a Thomas Hobbes, told him of the translated edition and then wanted to talk philosophy and get Galileo to say things he didn't want to say. Because they conversed in Latin, and the English way of pronouncing Latin was very strange, like something that he seemed to recall, he was able to bend the talk to topics he was comfortable discussing. Thus Hobbes went away without any denunciations or blasphemies to quote. A younger pair of Englishmen were more congenial, at least at first. They were traveling around Europe together, a Thomas Hedke and one John Milton. Hedke was the more pleasant of the two, but Milton did most of the talking, for along with excellent Latin, he spoke a mangled but comprehensible version of Tuscan Italian, a very unusual ability for a foreigner. He talked a lot. He did not appear to have heard that proverb for travelers in foreign lands, the one that says, close thoughts and an open face. He declared that he was good with languages and knew how to speak Spanish, French, Tuscan, Latin, and Greek. And he had a thousand questions, most of them leading questions, intended to make the Pope look bad, and also the Jesuits, for whom he seemed to harbor a particular dislike, which was funny given how Jesuitical he was. Do you not agree that the judgment rendered against you was an attempt to assert that the Roman Church had the authority to say what you can think and what you can't think? Well, not so much what you can think as what you can say. Precisely. They claim the right to decide who gets to speak. Well, yes, but every society does that. This silenced the young man for a time. He was sitting on a stool drawn up next to Galileo's divan. Hedke had gone out to the garden with Galileo's old student, Carlo Dotti, who had brought the two Englishmen to Arcetri. Now Milton crouched by his side asking questions. Were the Medici's tyrants? Were there poisoners? Did they believe what Machiavelli taught? Did Galileo believe what Machiavelli taught? Did Galileo know who was the greatest Italian poet after the incomparable Dante? Because Milton did. It was Tasso. Did Galileo know what huge benefits were conferred by chastity? I haven't been noticing those, Galileo muttered. <laughs> <laughs> and even more so, the benefits conferred by that sage and serious doctrine, virginity. Galileo was at a loss for words. He saw again that there were men who were both highly intelligent and deeply stupid at the same time. <laughs> he had been that way himself for much of his life, and so now he was a bit more tolerant than he would have been in years past. He kept steering the conversation back to Dante for lack of a better subject. He did not want to hear any more about the vast superiority of the Reformed Protestant faith, which was the youth's favorite topic. So he talked about Dante and what made him so great. Anyone can make hell interesting, he said. It's purgatory that matters. Milton laughed at this, but there's no such thing as purgatory. Yours is a hard creed, Galileo said. You Protestants are not quite human, it seems to me. So you still undertake to defend the Church of Rome? Yes, I do. The young man could not agree with this, as he explained again at length. Galileo tried to divert him by saying that he had studied as a youth to be a monk, but then had noticed a lamp in the cathedral swinging overhead after being lit by an acolyte, and by timing the periods of the swings with his pulse, had confirmed that no matter how widely the lamp swung in its pendular motion, it always took the same amount of time to cross the arc. As I saw the truth of that situation, I rang like a struck bell. This was God telling you to leave the Church of Rome. I don't think so. 
Galileo drank more wine and felt the old sadness sweep through him like any other pendulum, steady in its cosmic beat. He grew sleepy. In the way of any garden variety fool, the priggish young virtuoso was overstaying his welcome. Galileo stopped listening to him and drifted off into a light sleep. He came to at something the youth said about blindness being a judgment on him. The blind still see inside, he said, and those who see are sometimes the blindest of all. Not if they shield themselves by their own prayers made direct to God. Well, but prayers are not always answered. They are if you've prayed for the right thing. Galileo could not stifle a laugh. I suppose that's true, he said. I, I want what Job wants. There were no words that would reach the youth. You could never teach other people anything that mattered. The important things they had to learn for themselves, almost always by making mistakes, so that the lessons arrived too late to help. Experience was in that sense useless. It was precisely what could not be passed along in a lesson or an equation. The young foreigner sat there nattering on in his bizarre Lat Italian. For a while, Galileo dozed off and dreamed of plunging through space. When he woke again, the youth had gone silent, and Galileo was not even sure he was still in the room. Pride leads to a fall, he murmured. You should remember that. I know. I was proud, but I fell. My mother stole my eyes. And the favorite has to fall in the end to make room for more. The fall is our life, our flight. If I could say it properly, you would understand. You would, because I had such dreams. I had such a daughter. But the disagreeable youth apparently had already slipped away. So Galileo fell back asleep. When he woke again, the house was silent around him, but he could feel that someone stood in his doorway. The person stepped toward him furtively, and he knew it was not the Englishman. He patted the divan. She lay down beside him, the back of her head against his knee, wordless and unforgiving. They lay there like that for a long time. Do you need a bigger cap? Yeah. Hey, Rick! We'll hope for the best. I'm going to speak louder. Eventually, he fell asleep again, and while asleep, he had a dream. You remember this is? Yes. He dreamed he was in church, worshiping with his family and friends. Around him stood Sarpi and Segredo and Salviati and Cecchi and Castelli and Piccolomini and Alessandra and Viviani and Mazzolini, and at the back, Cartophilus and La Piera. At his side stood Maria Celeste. Near the altar, he saw that Marina and Macalano were conferring over something as Macalano prepared the service. Overhead swung the lamp he had seen as a boy, still making its pendulum, and now there was a little spring at the point of attachment, which at every swing gave the pendulum cord a little extra push near the fulcrum so that the lamp would swing forever, forming a clock keeping God's own time. That spring device was a good idea. The altar in this church was a big pair of his inclined planes, and all of them together under Macalana's direction ran the experiments on falling bodies, moving the beautifully finished frames this way and that, setting balls free, timing their falls by way of water running into chalices. Marina let the balls drop, Mazzolini grinned his gap-toothed grin, and everyone sang the hymn, All Things Move by God. Fra Paolo spread his arms and said, these ripples expand far into space and set into vibration not only strings, but also any other body that happens to have the same period. And Segredo said, sometimes a wonder is obscured by a miracle. Then they moved two planes into a V shape and placed a little ivory curve at the bottom to connect them so that the ball would shift smoothly from down to up. At the top of the second plane, Mazzolini placed the workshop bell 
on its side. The Lady Alessandra, her head touching the vault of the dome, reached down and released a ball from the top of the first plane. A steep drop, a long decelerating rise, and then the ball hit the edge of the bell. And Galileo heard the bell ring all over all the worlds. Thank you. Well, this was two really beautiful and interesting pieces of reading and a lot of really interesting fiction. Now, I wanted to kind of ratchet back and that, because I was thinking, you guys have been in this writing game for a long time. And it's changed significantly, I think, since when you guys started. I mean, did you guys, uh, do you guys both write on laptops now for the most part? I do mostly, or, or at home on my desktop or yeah. in a coffee shop on a laptop. You too? Yeah. Pretty much. Did you start that way? No. Nope. <laughs> so, as if. Uh, I, 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 this is and this is something that interests me because I think that in your generation we have seen a, a really important shift in the way that literature, fiction, everything is created. Uh, there's no more sitting there, thank, thanking God for the little uh, eraser thing that on your IBM Selectric. There's, there's no, no more of that, and that really changes the way, I'm guessing, the way that you write fiction. So I, I'd like you to each talk about maybe the way you first approached your first novel, your first book, your first story, and the way you do now, and how, that kind of, how you felt that kind of evolution. I, um, I am left-handed, and I have mystical theories about uh, left-handedness connecting to the right side of my brain, which is not the linguistic side. So I wrote most of my novels by hand in notebook up until very, very recently when I finally decided I could uh, uh, test out dispensing with it and see if anything changed. And I'm still not sure whether it has or not, and I may go back to handwriting the first drafts. But I would write the, handwrite the first draft and then type in a second draft that would be substantially different, just looking at it and changing everything accordingly. And then I would type up another draft, and I did four novels on typewriters. Um, and so when I made my first backspace on an Apple Macintosh 128K back in the early 80s and it disappeared the mistake, I said, I want one of those. <laughs> and um, it just shifted over like everybody else did. That's an amazing convenience. And I, I would say I used to do four drafts of a novel and now I do perhaps 10 or a dozen. Oh, really? Because of the ability to uh, not have to retype the parts that you don't need to change, obviously. I just. Anytime you read a draft now is a, is a revision, in effect, because you can read and change, read and change, read and change. So I like that. I think that gives you a little, I think my novels have gotten longer, because there's this sense of Proustian addition. Every time you revise, there's more to say. <laughs> um, and I'm not as good at compressing backwards, but I'm trying to work on it. Does the concept of a draft even make sense now, or do you just do a continual revision? Well, I kind of. I still think it makes sense because I go back to the beginning, start, read all the way through. That's kind of like a draft. Do you have versions in your novel? Like, you know, was there Galileo's dream V1.0, V1.2, and then 2.0? And well, there's just draft one through a dozen, and oh, okay. Know, I try to throw away all of the pre all, everything but the last one, really. You do throw away all the one, and do you save something? No, I don't think that's a good thing for people to be looking at. It's not worth anybody's time. So. So you know, Garcia Marquez, 100 Years of Solitude, one of the best books in this store or any other store. When he was done with 100 Years of Solitude, he went down to the beach in Mexico 
and they burned everything but the final draft. Really? And so you don't have, you, you mean you take select group drag to trash, empty trash for the early versions of this book? No, I just wait till the computer dies and then oh. I throw it away. <laughs> Rudy, what are you uh, doing these days? And what well, did you start I, doing? I first started writing when I was about 30. Uh, that would have been 1976. And at that time, uh, I had an IBM Selectric, which my day job for many years was being a mathematics professor, and then later I became a computer science professor. And so it was important to have a Selectric because there's this thing where you could change the head and you could put in a head with symbols. And if you're a mathematician, that was a big help. And you could also, you could get this special ribbons that had, uh, part of it was sort of like scotch tape and you could, you could do the erasing. And so I wrote, uh, I think from 76 to 86, I guess I wrote maybe 10 books. And all of those are written on the typewriter. And uh, one thing about the typewriter, I became a little bit, uh, well, you're a little bit reluctant sometimes to revise. Because you'll say, well, this page, there's something that isn't quite right. But Christ, I don't want to retype this whole page again. <laughs> Or then I'd get into cut and paste in the, the old sense of the word. <laughs> and you could do that and, you know, paste stuff up. And then at some point, sometimes I begin, you could usually, in near a college town, you can usually find people that'll type a book for you. So I would get the thing, sort of cut it and paste it, and then with some extra additions. Though usually I would end up doing a full type through at least twice. And I always felt it was good to do the full type through because uh, if I actually had to retype every single word, that would make me rethink it a little bit more. Sure. Yeah. You have to type, put, press that those keys. Yeah. That's energy. But then uh, I'm uh, I'm hearing a, a feedback on this. Yeah. Is that a bad thing? That's not a good thing. Let me just. Maybe you should mute your mic. Yeah. yeah. Let's just see. Here. And then. Uh, then when I started using the word processor, it was about the time when we moved to California in 86. And uh, there were a lot of things I liked about that, and I still like it. Uh, I like that it's, I mean, it's very easy to move things around, and you're not locked into what you originally wrote. It's totally easy to revise. And another thing, I'll have a document of uh, what I call the notes for the book. And if there's a passage, one trap you can get into that's a passage, it's so beautifully written, but it sort of doesn't really make sense of the book. And so what do you do with it? But then I copy it over into the notes document, and then you know, it's still preserved for the ages, but it's, it's no longer screwing up my novel. You know? so, <laughs> so that's something. And uh, what I, I do a sort of, it's sort of a continual revision process. Any given chapter, I'll print out you know, what I have written, maybe the 10 pages I have. I'll take that down to the coffee shop. I'll, I'll mark it up with a pen. And then the next day, to get started again, I'll, I'll type in the changes, and then I'll get me going again. And then I'll start adding stuff and, and mutating it and changing it. And then I'll get another chunk done. And then I'll print that out and revise it. And it'll be sort of a moving window. I won't reprint the whole book. Though every so often when I get to maybe some big turning point in the book, like I don't know what to do next, or I'm a third of the way through, or two-thirds, I'll print out everything I have and then reread the whole thing and mark all that up. So it is, in a way, that the idea of draft is somewhat nebulous. Though there are times when I'll print out you know, the entire finished thing 
and there will be various states of the entire finished thing. So there, there might be three or four things like that, drafts in that sense. But along the way, there's been many partial and micro drafts. Now, now whether, I always, I always have this dream that maybe if I save my drafts, I might be able to get money for them someday. But uh, uh, I have a lot of them in my basement. But uh, there's this school, UC Riverside. They have a whole lot of SF drafts. Yes, they do. SF papers. But they, they don't pay you. But uh, they don't actually charge you money to take them. <laughs> so I asked San Jose State, and they were like, well, can you give me some money for the, the curating fee? That didn't seem like a winning concept. So I don't know. There used to be a thing where you could donate your papers if you're an author to a library and then get a tax write-off. And then the, uh, the Congress got rid of that law because of Richard M. Nixon, <laughs> good old Nixon. He had uh, donated the papers for his, his memoir to, to some, some library down south. Yorba Linda, I was right near where I used to live. Yeah. Yeah, and he'd taken, of course, a $27 million tax write-off for doing this. And Congress thought, well, this is a bit excessive, so let's not have tax write-offs for <coughs> authors ever. It's kind of funny. Well, you know, one thing that strikes me is that um, the, the real nature of writing has fundamentally changed when you ha don't have to type up that, those pages anymore. That makes a big difference in your writing experience. And also that what you were talking about, I think, the ability to get rid of your most beautiful part and put it somewhere else where it doesn't screw up your whole narrative. Mm -hmm. yeah. Stan, um, when you're putting together, you write short stories and novels both. So talk about that kind of uh, going back and forth. I know you don't write many short stories, but you do write some. Yeah, I don't anymore. <coughs> um, I think, like a lot of people, I began writing short stories. It's a sensible thing to do. I began by writing poetry and, and considered myself a poet. And this, but this is a kind of an undergraduate delusion on my part. Uh, but it, uh, when you're writing a poem, you can, even in the typewriter stage, you can run it through the typewriter uh, 20, 50 times, and you can get a page that is exactly what you want. And uh, years later, you realize that that it's still not good. But the thing is, the process itself is a really uh, learning experience. And so then I started writing short stories, and, and short stories you can do somewhat the same thing and, and, and practice. You don't need to destroy a year or two of your life by following a false lead and writing a bad novel. You can just write a bad short story, and it's just a couple weeks. <laughs> so it's a great way to start learning, and the stories just kept getting longer. But I must say, once I began writing novels, I liked the novels better. I liked the sense of sprawling out and having lots of characters and lots of events. And a short story is a really hard thing to do, somewhat like a sonnet is in poetry. An amount of compression and pressure of finding an event that's worth telling about. So I've fallen away from uh, my ability to comprehend what I did in my short stories has somewhat gone from me. And, uh, and I, I like novels. I, I like getting into the novel and knowing that I've, I sort of forget when I began it and I forget when I'm supposed to be done with it, at least in theory. And um, I'm just in the middle of a novel and when I'm done with that one I'm going to start another novel. So there's not even any point in worrying about ending. It's all just about writing that scene that day. And so I've become really fond of writing novels. Mm. Sounds like uh, you know, the, many people, and I'm, I myself am one of them, I really like the reading experience of a novel, that kind of getting lost in that place and being able to go back and visit 
yeah. like a vacation almost. And I think that it sounds like the writing experience for you is similar to that. Well, uh, one more thing I will say is that I have decided that it isn't good in my best interest to try to write nonfiction. I don't think I am a, a talented or interesting nonfiction writer, and I have never done reviews. And so by stripping away and uh, giving up on the short story and doing nothing but novels, I feel like I've probably, over the course of my writing career, I have one, maybe two more novels than I would have had if I had uh, done these other things. And it goes against the concept, one concept of the modern writer is that really you're supposed to be able to be good at everything. It's sort of like a Virginia Woolf thing. She's got the greatest novels, the greatest short stories, the greatest nonfiction essays. Uh, and so there's a sort of modernist portrait of the writer that can do it all and, and is as important a critic as they are a novelist. All very well and good if you can do it. But for my own sense of things, I just have decided that what I'd like to do is write good novels, and the rest of it is, is a way of making enemies by doing reviews. And it's just a waste of your time. It doesn't make you much money. You make enemies in your community. I never saw the attraction of it. So I do think I've been very uh, compactly focused in on my, on my main project, and that's been good for me. When you're writing a novel, I'd like to ask both of you this, Rudy, you too. Uh, do you feel like you're kind of living a second life in that novel as, the, as you write it, uh, in a sense, a secret Well, line. very much so. It's, uh, I have this theory about how I write. It's, I call it transrealism, mm -hmm. where in some ways uh, my novels represent aspects of my real life. And it's partly because I have this fascination with beatnik literature and this sort of confessional, self-revelatory style of it. And I see uh, science fiction as, at least the way I write science fiction, is that I can see that as sort of expressing my inner life, but then putting science fiction on top of it. And if you look at my novels, it's almost always the case that the character is some guy who's not overly successful, and he finds a way to leave his world. He goes to another dimension, he goes to the afterworld, he goes to the past, he goes, uh, goes past infinity. And that's really an exact objective correlative for me, because when I'm writing a novel, I'm saying, all right, I'm going to leave this world for a while. You know, I don't have to deal with the, the same old stuff in the newspapers. I'm going to be in another world. I'm going to be in flimsy, you know, or I'm going to be in, you know, in, on another dimension. I'm going to be beyond infinity. So it's, I like that idea of leaving the world. And I do. I become very fond of the novel world. As Stan says, it's, it's nice to be able to keep going back there every day, and it's always, a, in some ways, a sad day when I finish. I mean, there's, at any time, I don't know if all writers have this, but at any time, when I start a novel, you know, I have zero confidence that I can finish it. You know, I think, how did I ever write a novel? I was faking all these years. I can't write at all, you know. But then, so you're, there's a sort of satisfaction that I was able to finish a book. And then, of course, there's the hope, you know, you get to send it in, it'll be published, some people will like it. But it's also very sad. It's maybe a little bit like a, a college graduation. You know, you're leaving. These people have become your best friends in, yeah. in some sense. Uh, also, some of the things Stan said about poetry and stories, I, I'll put in my, my take on that. I also, when I was young, that was the first thing I wrote was poems because that's the sort of, I mean, if you're a young person, that's like kind of the least threatening art form. I mean, of course, this is pre-computer. You needed a typewriter and a sheet of paper, and you could write something that resembled a poem in any case. You know, and 
You had 20 sheets of paper, as you say. It was very easy to revise, and that was fun. You could revise it and revise it and revise it. <coughs> and uh, I used to, I often worked as a professor, and then the English department would have readings for, you know, in every English department, there's professors who write poetry. And so then I would get to, sh I'd show up and I'd read a few of my poems. And that was fun. I liked that. And then I started writing stories, and then the stories, I, was, I found I was able to sell a few of them to places like Asimov's and Analog, and uh, that was nice. But as Stan says, the, uh, at this point, there's less, it, seems, it feels like there's less markets for stories than there used to be. And it's also, it's, I find it really hard to sell a story. I mean, if, if I can't sell it to Tor.com or Asimov's right off, then it, it becomes a problem. You know, it becomes hard to sell it. And then if you do sell it, it might be two years before it comes out. And then you're going to get about $400, you know. And uh, it's just, it's such a hassle to, to sell a story. It's also the case, it's very hard to write a story. It's like, it's like sonnet or haiku. It's very, and it's fun. I like the exercise of doing it. One thing I do to sort of ease the pain of writing stories is uh, I often collaborate on people with stories. I've collaborated with, you know, maybe seven or eight different people on stories over the years. And then it's, I mean, since nobody's got published it and I'm not going to get paid, I might as well at least have a little bit of fun writing this with a pal. And so then th that's sort of fun. And, uh, but uh, there, it is a, it, the, the thing about balancing your career, it is a way to keep your name out there, but it doesn't keep your name out there that much because hardly anybody looks at the story magazines anyway. So it's, uh, it's, if, you can, if you can find a way to do it, it's a nice thing to do. Another thing, if you're known as a story writer, then people are always hassling you to write a story, you know, for some, some anthology about whatever, you know, that's going to come out for some press you've never heard of, you know, unicorn sex, you know, from... <laughs> New that's Zealand a, that's violation a very common, press. Very common. There are four you know, or five and, of those. Can you at least commit to write a story? You know, the, the last thing I need is a deadline, especially for something that is fairly meaningless. You know, the, the thing about we were talking about this at dinner. One of the nice things about being a novel writer is you just need to convince one person to buy this book, and then you're cool for like a year, two years. You can just kick back, you can go off in your other world, you can do your thing, and you know, you, you know it's pre-sold, you know, you know you're going to sell it. And that's a, that's a very pleasant feeling. Then, I mean, Paul DeFilippo is a very good friend of mine, and he writes fast. He'll write a story in a week. So he's writing four stories a month, but then, I mean, the amount of time he's putting into going out trying to sell these things, it's, I don't know, it's, I just don't have that kind of uh, patience. Well, you know, what it strikes me, too, what you were both saying is that <clears throat> this writing is kind of like a secret world. <clears throat> and I think, I was thinking too, when you're reading, it's like you're re living a secret life. And, and because nobody else experiences the book the way you do. And when you're sitting there in that book, there's nobody with you. It's just you and the writer in that world. It's really very much like ha having a secret life. You can read all sorts of really weird, freaky stuff and you're just reading a book, and it's, you can lead to a dozen different lives at once. And uh, what struck me, both these books are about people who all, are also leading secret lives and, and going off into different worlds. And I'd like you to each talk about 
the different worlds and secret lives that you develop for your characters in this book. Stan, you set yourself a very difficult task. You wanted to write what I think is essentially a, a fabulous biography uh, of Galileo with a big dollop of really weird stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, I wanted to write a science fiction novel, as I always do. And Galileo, uh, I think of him, he had come to my attention doing research for an alternative scientific revolution for an earlier science fiction project. And I realized that there's many senses in which he was the first scientist. And, I'm trained in a materialist versions of history in which there really shouldn't be the great man theory that someone wears to start science is just too bizarre to contemplate. And yet, various aspects of the scientific method and math, doing a repeatable experiments with independent variables that could be manipulated and then the results mathematicized and understood by way of geometries and then predictions made and further experiments done, all in Galileo's workshop. And you can go back into the medieval uh, monasteries and you can find elements of it in Roger Bacon and other uh, characters, but you don't find the complete package until Galileo just is doing it in his workshops. So I wanted to tell that story, but as a science fiction, and uh, one day I thought about G Galileo looking up at the moons of Jupiter through his uh, telescope in 1610, and then kind of mm, being transported through the telescope to Jupiter uh, to a far future civilization of humans that have taken him there by time travel. And I had never done a time travel story never done an alien story, and aliens get involved. And I thought um, that image was, the, was the, the way in for me, so that I wasn't doing a biography. And didn't, I'm not interested in biography per se, although I read a fair number of them. So, so this was a, it's just another science fiction novel. But Galileo was a very a dominating character in his own time, in his own life. And, and, in, and anybody who comes in contact with him, he kind of takes over the show. And, uh, and the more that happens when you, actually, as a novelist, it was like a gift from God to have such a, a cantankerous and interesting character who wrote 20 volumes worth of stuff. And he's almost exact contemporary of uh, Shakespeare, although he lived a lot longer, but they were born in the same year. And we know so much more about Galileo than we uh, know about Shakespeare in terms of the details of his life. There are a stupendous amount of evidence out there that they have, and documentary evidence, and the Vatican saved a lot of it. And, uh, there it is in the Italian records in a way that for Shakespeare we have this, this minuscule set of, uh, of documents. So this is partly uh, you know, my, my inspiration for, for that particular project. But, but before I do, I want to mention that I'm a, I'm a reader of Rudy's. And it is not always true. People can be quite good friends in the science fiction community and even hang out a lot and actually not read each other very much because there's too much to be read. And if I had to read everything by my friends in the science fiction field, then I wouldn't read anything else, and I'd be overwhelmed. But I actually am a reader of Rudy's, and we've never done an event before uh, together that I know of. And um, uh, the, well, he talked about this transrealism, and you can take uh, two of his books, uh, All the Visions and The Secret of Life, and they are like a realist, kind of a Kerouac uh, version of the story, and then a transrealist uh, science fiction version of the story, and they're the same story. So people will be teaching this pair in literature classes when they try to uh, explain how science fiction works, I truly believe that they can use Rudy's uh, novels and his, the rest of his writing to give you a little tutorial and get a lot of pleasure out of it. And also the nonfiction books, the, the Fourth Dimension or the book uh, The Life Box, and The Seashell and everything. These are, to me, they've been in, uh, uh, educational. And I, and I like it that there's other science fiction writers out there that 
that know science and they're actually the mathematician or working scientists, it's pretty rare in our field. And actual science fiction as a pure product is a kind of a 1950s engineer's idea that never was very strong and never very prominent. And what we call science fiction is actually this big sprawling world of fantasy and wish fulfillment and teenage gun fantasies, et cetera. So it's always been important to me to have Rudy as a mathematician and a computer scientist writing these great hallucinatory uh, science fiction novels. It, it's, um, I've learned a lot as a reader, and, and that always comes back into the writing. And, and after I read As Above, So Below, which is his novel about Peter Bruegel, I thought, you don't have to write a, a, a historical novel by using fusty language and pretending that you're going to write in a medieval English. I mean, that's not necessary. You can actually convey the sense of the period in a very lively contemporary English, which I, I was encouraged by that, too. So thanks very much, Steve. Fun. <laughs> so happy to do this event. Well, Rudy, why don't you tell us about uh, Creating the Flimsy? This is a wonderful novel. Your new novel is so wonderful because <clears throat> it takes what is often presented as a supernatural concept and retools it to your own weird, hallucinatory science fiction vision. And I love that. It's so much fun. It's really a hoot. Well, that's, I, sh I should also mention, I really enjoy the, the historical writing in uh, Galileo's Dream. I've been reading it with great pleasure. It's uh, one thing people sometimes don't realize is how hard it was for all these famous people in the past. And, the dailiness of their life, and Stan does a really good job of, of doing that, bringing that out. It's really a lovely book. But with Jim and the Flims, uh, one of the things I was interested in this book, I was interested in writing a book about the afterlife. I used to, as a boy reading science fiction, I would think, why isn't there more science fiction about the afterlife? And there was one book by Robert Sheckley called Immortality Incorporated, that was sort of about the afterlife, but it was mostly more about they kind of went up to the edge and there's you know this glow and then they'd go back and do something else. They, they sort of didn't go in there. And one of the first books I wrote was called White Light. And that was a novel where they went to the afterworld and I had a PhD in set theory, so the afterworld was organized as the universe of set theory. <laughs> With different levels, Aleph Null, Aleph One, Aleph Two. And, then at the high point was uh, the absolute, the class of all ordinals, the white light. <laughs> but, uh, but now, that was a long time ago. I've written a lot of books since then. And I thought it'd be fun to go back and have another take on the afterworld. And uh, I was thinking also, there's this, been this thing about fantasy has been sort of eating our lunch, the science fiction writers. You know, they're, they're getting all the big sales. And I was thinking, well, well, what if I did an afterworld and made it a sort of like a fantasy? You know, I'll have weird creatures, and uh, maybe I'll have a castle. <laughs> and, uh, and then I was like, well, all right, there'll be a castle, but it's going to be shaped like a giant geranium plant. You know, okay. <laughs> and there's going to be creatures, but I'm going to hold back, and I'm only going to have two kinds of them. My, my wife, Sylvia, she sometimes... Uh, chides me for having too many creatures in my novel. Sometimes I'll let go and they'll be, you need like a glossary, you know, there's like 30 kinds of critters seething around there. So I, I tried to limit it. And then I also thought, well, the thing, what, what I find often disappointing in fantasy per se is there's sometimes this sense that they don't feel like they have to 
cash the checks that they write. I mean, they'll say, this and this happened, but I'm not going to get around to explaining why. Mm -hmm. Of course, on TV, you know, you see things like the X-Files are lost, and the whole thing is everybody's just always making their eyes big and saying, wow, what does it mean? You know, and then you get to the last episode, and then you never find out. You know, the check bounces. <laughs> so uh, I thought, I, I want to have something. And if you're a science fiction writer, it's, I mean, you're used to just making up well, I don't like to use the word bullshit, you know, but let's say pseudoscientific explanation or a paralogical explanation. The strategic that, opacity. <laughs> the strategic <laughs> opacity. I like I that. that That's Boy. Spin, spin red. Oh, spin red. <laughs> yeah. But so make it so it has a sort of coherence because then it's just, it's more satisfying to me if I can like draw a picture of the world that they're in, you know, sort of like Dante's drawings of the of the inferno, you know, where you have this image, very precise image, and there's things that can happen and things that can't happen, and, and work it all out like that. And so that, and then the book was, when I first was about halfway through the book, I was, I was thinking, why aren't there ever novels with heroes as 60-year-old men? So I tried writing it with a hero as a 60-year-old man, and I sent it to my editor, Dave Hartwell at Tor, and he said, well, I'm not going to buy a book about a 60-year-old man. <laughs> Nobody wants to read that. <laughs> so then I was like, all right. So I changed it to a 26-year-old, which uh, I can do that too. And then, uh, then at that point, I was selling some other book to Tor, so I ended up selling it to Nightshade Press anyway. But it, it sort of worked better with a younger man. And then there could be some issue with his wife. Uh, and so that, uh, it, all, it, it all worked out pretty well. Well, this was based in part on your, <clears throat> your decision to create the flimsy was based in part on an experience you had, too. Well, um, yeah, I almost died three years ago. I had a, uh, there was like a, a uh, what do you call it? <laughs> Cerebral hemorrhage. Yeah, but there was like a, a malformation, a malformed vein, oh, a birth defect. There's like a vein in my head that was, uh, had a bad shape to it. And it, it went along fine for 65 years or whatever. And then it suddenly burst and I keeled over and you know, I had to go to the hospital and uh, they didn't do surgery, the bleed stopped by itself. And then I came back out of it about three days later. And it was like this missing black period. That was one thing, there's this woman you're always, who's always talking about her illumination, what is it she call it? My stroke of insight. Everybody in the world talks about this YouTube video. I refuse to see it. Because, I mean, I didn't see any white light. I didn't see any dead relatives. I didn't have any insight. It was a jump cut. You know, I was here, then bang, I was here. There's no sense of time passing. There was void, zero, zilch. And that made me a little discouraged, okay? Because I've always had this sort of white light belief that there is an afterworld or maybe, you know, who knows, woo woo. <laughs> so uh, then I thought, well, just to cheer myself up, I'm going to write a book in which there actually is an afterworld. You know, it'll be a completely bogus pseudoscientific afterworld, but it'll be fun, it'll be interesting, it'll have some creatures in it, it'll have a castle shaped like a geranium. <laughs> and, uh, so that's what I did. Stan, would you talk about uh, creating the world of uh, 3,000 years in the future of uh, Galileo and 
how you how and why you chose to shape it thusly? Well, this is just one of those uh, problems like crossword puzzle makers must get into when they're making their crossword puzzles actually cross at the points and the letters make a shape. If once I postulated that Galileo was snatched off through a telescope like a voyage to Arcturus, this great old visionary novel, to the moons of Jupiter and there was a human population out there and they could do that, I had to shove it far off enough into the future that I could talk about time travel in the scientific pseudo-babble way that Rudy's talking about. And I had to invent a theory of time that would allow it to be possible, having as usual, the usual suspects of quantum mechanics, etc. But I also d d postulated that time is a, is a three-parted vector of three different manifolds or dimensions that are intersecting with each other. There one of go. them very fast, one of them very slow, and one of them essentially anti-chronological, going backwards compared to the rest of time. And that these three together made uh, the time that we kind of get ground up in. And that, um, so that all, it seemed to me the further out in the future I went, the more likely uh, I could explain this time travel device that they're in. And then on the other hand, I didn't want it to be too far out because I wanted to be able to talk about the human history between Galileo's time and their time. And they want him uh, burned at the stake. There are multiple possible times. It's kind of a parallel world situation. This is fairly common in science fiction. Nobody who's uh, conversant with science fiction will be surprised at anything that I did except for maybe my triple vector time. And so uh, the, they, didn't need, they need to be not too far out in the future so that I could plausibly describe the history in between as being disaster after disaster after disaster. And yet there's another future in which if only Galileo was burned at the stake, then the Catholic religion would have been completely discredited and 100 years later we would have a completely secular civilization. It would still be terrible, but it wouldn't be as terrible as the one that existed when Galileo survived. So there's a gang of people trying to get Galileo burned at the stake in this book and a secret history uh, underneath it. So, but see, these are just like the proliferations that once you have one stupid idea, in order to uh, shore it up, it's like building a house of cards and, and you slowly stack a, a little support system to make this idea make sense for the time that the book is being read. And you can get quite beautiful things. I think uh, Stephen Jay Gould talks about spandrels, that as we evolve to adapt to our situation, we develop certain abilities, like chess plane ability, that are spandrels. They do, they're accidents of adaptation to a more uh, concrete situation. And so novels will develop these you know, things that just effloresce from the basic conceit. And it's kind of fun. It's, it's, the, it's the, the game part of it, the entertainment part of it, of making it, like a tinker toy. Well, it's interesting to me that that you're, what you're writing about in terms of these kind of secret worlds, in a sense, to me at least, reflects the way we read. And that's, I think, one of the things that makes your both these books so entertaining is that they subliminally, in a sense, speak to just the reading experience itself of just sitting there like this. I mean, it's... The different, me sitting in front of that book is not a whole lot different than Galileo going up the telescope. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just following him up the telescope, to, to, to be quite honest, and going into the flimsy. And Galileo was a deep reader of, uh, I mean, Dante. He wrote a long essay how you can uh, tell the size of, um, of the various levels of hell geometrically because of the length of Satan's arm down in his bed of ice <laughs> relative to Virgil's height. And so he did a proportional thing. And so he loved these kind of games. And he's a big reader. He had a personal relationship with Archimedes. I mean, Archimedes was his man. So he, too, was a reader. And we all fall into these worlds. Yeah, I loved reading growing up. I mean, I grew up 
like in Louisville, I mean, it wasn't a place, Louisville, Kentucky, not that much happening. And it was very, uh, I was very, very devoted to reading. It was a way to get out of the ordinary life. And it is also, it's funny that we get excited about 3D movies or virtual reality, but really if you're a reader, it, as you were saying, you, you get into it, you're gone, you're in that world, and all the stuff is there. Our brain is so malleable and suggestible. You don't really need all the high tech to, well, to get these effects to work. Here's a joke I've used before. This presentation has been in 3D. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, and, and I think when you read either of these books, you're going to find yourself deeply ensconced in the books. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.